Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing the Lagan Valley area filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, lagonvalleyvineyard.com. Stephen, let me pray for you and then, um, and then we'll let you loose on us. Is that all right? Uh, let's pray for Stephen, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you for Stephen. Thank you for who he is. Thank you for all that he carries. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that tonight would be a blessing to him as he begins to partner with you this evening in what you're wanting to do amongst us. And Lord, would you bless us? Would you teach us? Would you disrupt us in a glorious way? Would you inspire us and enlarge us, we pray, for all that you're wanting to do in and through our lives. So bless, Stephen, in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you, bro. Thanks. Thank you. Wow. Good. I have been looking forward to coming to LVV since. When did we talk, Andy? It was like I was living in. I'm Canadian. I was visiting my home country, and and we. It was about a year ago, and I had a little Skype call, and just a little picture of Stu and Andy. In fact, and when I came in this morning, I was like, I don't think I can recognize them because they're just little tiny pictures. But here we are, and that was about a year ago. It's so fun. I love it. So. I said I'm Canadian, so that explains my crazy accent. I moved to England, actually, 22, 23 years ago. And then I was just for fun, for an adventure, and I ended up living in England. And then I went to university. And in fact, one of my university friends is here, which is amazing. I remember sitting in his room listening to the new REM album. Do you remember that, Ben? The new one, which is now celebrating its 20-year anniversary. Up. It was up. We're listening to Up. Can you believe it? Anyway, so um, anyway, super fun to be here, really fun. And then uh, uh, I have been, for the last 10 years or so, I used to teach at uh, uh, an Anglican college, Church of England College in London. And it was one of the, it was, it is probably the biggest theology college in, maybe in Europe, but certainly in the UK. And it trains one in five, one in four of the next Anglican priests and ministers. And I mean, who here is a professional Christian? Who here gets paid to be a Christian? Andy, yeah, right. There's a few of us, right, Stu? Basically, I was working as a theologian in, an, in a Christian college. I was, I was like, theology is, is kind of wasted on Andy and Stu. They need it, but so does everybody else. And what was happening is I'm working in a college and all of my students are just there because they want a Christian job at the end of it or because somebody told them, you're called to the ministry, well then you need to go and study this thing called theology and then when you check all the boxes, you'll be qualified, right? Now listen, I actually really think that leaders of churches should be qualified in theology, but I don't think that theology is just for people who are going to become leaders in churches. Do you see what I mean? And so I was like, well, how do you get theology back into the local church where it belongs? Like, how do you do that? And we would always try and come up with a new course or a new way to do it. And, but always at the end of the day, it was just, we're sitting in our university and we expect local church people to come to us. And it really doesn't work very well. So, long story short, I quit my job. I quit my job at this Anglican college and I went, I took my show on the road and I became a freelance theologian, <laughs> which is really weird. And it, it doesn't, and I called it tent theology, and this was about two years ago. And local churches bring me in, and I just sit with people for a while. And I'm, I'm actually here with some people at, um, at LVV for, for, till Tuesday. And, but I just kind of live with people for a time, and I bring theology. There's lots of good stuff locked away in the universities. And I think, well, it works for all of us too. Local church, we invented theology. We invented it. And, and when the local church becomes separate from theology, it, it goes crazy and weird. And when theology goes separate from the local church, it gets really dumb and dead and boring and lifeless, right? We know this. We do know this. And so like, what happens if you get it together? So I thought, well, they're not coming to me. Let me come to them. And it's really fun. I love doing it. And I call it tent theology because it's, it's deliberately meant to be a little bit flexible. It's not meant to be building a, a big institution, right? tent. 
So I'm doing tent theology, and then one day I get a phone call from Lucy Pepiat, who some of you will probably know. Can I have a little nod if you know who she is? I think she's come here, hasn't she? And Lucy Pepiat is the principal of Westminster, or WTC, Westminster Theological Center. And so Lucy called me up and took me out for a coffee, and she said, so you like traveling around to local churches doing theology, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I do. And she said, well, do you know what WTC is? And she explained WTC's model to me. The idea that you can be a, you don't go to a college, you stay in your local worshiping environment, and together in your learning hub in your local church, you get a theology degree. And I was like, I wish I'd known about you earlier. I wouldn't have quit my job. <laughs> so we partnered with, so I've partnered with WTC. So sometimes I work for WTC, sometimes I work as a tent guy, but really it's always the same thing. I'm like into the local church doing theology in the local church. And you don't know it, but you're like, right now, you're sitting, this is a hub, and you might not know this, but you're a hub for WTC. You have access right now to the best theology college in the country. It's not the biggest, and that's why it's the best, you know? It's really good. It's like top quality, world class. It's spat, the, the teaching staff are from all over the world. The, they're spirit-filled, right? They're top in their game. They love worshiping Jesus. They, you know, it's you got to do it. It really is the best chance. And the next best thing is to do what I'm doing. It's tent. So, so what I want to do is, um, let me see here. Here's the funny thing: is I have done this before. I go on the road and I do my thing. And I had a, I have a typical talk that I do all the time. And I was going to do it this time, and it's pretty good because I've done it min- millions of times, and so I'm pretty good at it. And um, but the Lord actually said, I was praying about this even yesterday, and the Lord said, "My ways are not your ways." Okay. And uh, He said, "I don't want you to do that talk." Okay. What do you want me to talk about? And He and He told me, and that's what we're going to do. And uh, it's quite fun because where's John, right? Give us a wave, John. So I'm staying with John. I don't know if everybody knows John and Leslie. But, and then John picks me up from the airport. I'm staying with him. I never met him before. And he said, oh, I was praying for you yesterday, yesterday morning. And it's probably the exact same time. He was praying for me. He'd never met me. At the same time as I was praying about you all, he was also praying about this talk. And he had a little word for me that confirmed that I do want to give you the word that I'm going to give. So I'm I haven't really, I don't talk about it very much, so it might be a little bit kind of, it might not be an impressive teach, right? But I think there's going to be something here, and I think that it's for people, I think it's going to bring freedom to some people. So I'm, I'm really confident, I'm really expecting good stuff, so just so you know. Um, the other thing is that, I guess Dana's not here, is she? Okay. And I'm also looking around. I had a, this morning, I was here in the church service this morning at 11.30, and I just had a a little word for some people, and one of them was Dana, but she's not here. And I'm also looking out. I saw an image of a woman, and I'm just seeing if I can see you. If I see you, I'll come up to you afterwards. But there's a sort of a bigger word, really, that I just want to share. You're you're a weird, charismatic, you're crazy charismatics, right? Okay. Sometimes I teach to loopy liberals, and sometimes it's crabby conservatives, and sometimes it's crazy charismatics, and we... We all get along, right? We all love Jesus in our own way. So we're crazy charismatics here, so you know that. So I was worshiping, and I had a, just a little word. And that was a, I saw a, 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 like an iced bun, or just like a piece of bread, but it had like a really nice honey glaze over it, right? And it was like something quite stale and boring is instantly turned into dessert. Or something that's quite... Straightforward becomes dessert if you put a honey glaze on it. And I was asking the Lord, what is this? And, and he's, I mean, he's basically said it's for the women in this church. Right now, I just want to give you an encouraging word that you're like the, the honey glaze on the bread. Jesus said he's the bread of life. Now, the history of theology, the history of Christianity is there's a lot of white guys with beards who talk about the gospel. Now, I have a lot of time for white guys with beards. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, it, sometimes the bread of life or the gospel can stick in people's throats based on if they're, like, they're just tired of yet another white guy with a beard. And it was like the Lord said, oh, the, the women in this church, they get to bring new life 
to the bread of life, okay? So, just an encouragement to you ladies. And it's not an anti-man thing at all. Like I said, I'm a, I'm a white guy with a beard. And now we're going to talk about the gospel. So, if you... Now listen, ladies, you have to listen to this because I've just affirmed you to preach the gospel. So now I'm going to ask you, what's the gospel? Go on, shout it out. It's not actually a trick question. What, what do you, if somebody asked you, what's the gospel? What in the, who in the room? What would you say? The good news? Yeah, good news of what? Good news of salvation. And if somebody said, oh, I like the sound of this. Can you go into more detail? What would you say? You're not wrong, by the way. This isn't a trick question. I'm not making fun of you. Yeah. Freedom. The good news of salvation and freedom. How do I get this? What does that mean? How do I get some of this freedom? What would you say? Relationship with Jesus. Oh, wow. Um, Who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? Can you give in one line who's Jesus is? Son of God. Okay. So... I am not saying anybody was wrong. I'm not saying that. The gospel is the good news of salvation and freedom that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus who is the Son of God, who we might go further. We might say who's God became human and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again and so we might have a relationship. Right, we could, we could build a really good story. And I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. And I'm saying... If you were a first century Roman-occupied Judean living in Palestine and somebody said to you the word euangelion, which is where we get our word gospel from, you wouldn't hear God who became a man and died again for our sins so that we might be set free. When you heard the word euangelion as a Roman-occupied Palestinian Judean, you heard the word Well, it's not just good news. It's a Roman military word. It's the word you describe for, like, your rightful ruler is here. It's not just any old good news. It's not good news, you know, congratulations, you've had a baby girl, or congratulations, you've got that job. It's not any old good news. It's it's good news your rightful king has come. That's the word you... So, like... Um, imagine you're living in a city and it's, it's in, besieged by, by an enemy. And so Caesar, he gathers his troops and he, and he comes in and he breaks the siege and he would send his heralds into the city, right? And his heralds would cry, Euangelion, uh, Euangelion, good news, good news. Your rightful king has come and broken the siege. So Isn't it interesting that when the first gospel writers, Mark is probably the first gospel writer, but when the first people who sat down like, we need to capture what it felt like to be around Jesus. Gee, what did it feel like to be around Jesus? Mark 1.1, in the beginning, the good news that your rightful ruler has come to break the siege, Jesus Christ, the anointed one, right? So we're going to look, well, I just want to, let's put a pin in that. That's the gospel. That's what it felt like to hear gospel, okay? And all the other things, we've Christianized that word, and I'm glad we have. But you have to remember, it didn't originally mean that kind of religious Christian version. It originally had that political Roman victory. It had an air of rightful ruler and freedom from your enemies, yeah? Let's remember that. Okay, get your Bibles out. I know you all have Bibles or you have access to Bibles. Have a look at Romans 8. I have got a little exercise for you. Have a look at Romans 8. It's just two verses, three verses, 37. Romans 8, 37 to 39. What I want you to do is perhaps just get into little groups of three or four, all right? And have a look. Get into groups three or four. And then what you're going to do is you're going to look at that verses 37 to 39, and it lists a lot of things. And I want you to come up with one word that might connect all those things. 
All right? See if you can do it. So get into groups of three or four and have a look at 37 to 39 and one word that connects all these things. And while you're doing that, I'm going to write something on the whiteboard. Okay. Does anybody have, want to take a stab at one word that might connect that list, which you can see on the board? Go have a good go. Yeah. Juxtapositions. Okay, so we're putting opposites against each other. There's a hand up at the back. It's not Jesus. You're absolutely wrong. Yeah, you got a hand. God. Pretty close. He hovers over everything and through and all. Yeah? Holy Spirit. We're getting, yeah. Love. Cosmos. Cosmos is close, actually. Cosmos is the closest I've ever had on this exercise that I've... Um, the early... Now, I, I, it's a hard exercise. I did it on purpose, right? Because it's hard, isn't it? It's actually really hard. And I demonstrate... Uh, what I want to do is, it's not actually God and the Holy Spirit or love or Jesus... I want to demonstrate that we moderns have lost something that the early Christian imagination had in pretty good abundance. They actually had a word for this. And we've lost it. We've, it's shriveled on the vine for us, okay? And the word is principality. We even talked about it. We even sang about it. Or we talked about it earlier. Stu was talking about it. Principality. Sometimes the New Testament will translate these words as powers and principalities, right? Now think. Think of, we're crazy charismatic, so we love Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities, right? Demons, spiritual warfare, yeah. But how many of you know that the very same words that the Apostle Paul uses in Ephesians for, for demons... In Romans 13, he says, I want everyone to submit to the ruling authorities. And he uses the same words. The same words for demons is the words for bureaucracy and government in Romans 13. There's a, it makes sense, says some people, yeah, right? And then you get in Romans 8, you get a whole list and you'll notice what happens is, it's like a word salad, or it's like a cloud of words. So there isn't one particular um, word that always shows up all the time. It's more like a family of words. There's like a family of ideas that in the early Christian imagination, we translate into English now as powers and principalities or rulers and authorities. But if you look at, like, for instance, in Romans 8, you look at the list of the things that Paul talks about. He says, you know, I'm convinced neither death nor life, angels, demons, things present, things to come, no powers, right? And here's a clue. Neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will separate us for the love of Christ, and we're more than conquerors. There's some military language in there. So your gospel radar should be pinging. And Within uh, Romans 8, this is all connected. And what they are, they're all connected in this powers and principalities language. Sometimes a power and principality language refers to angels. So it's not always evil. Sometimes it refers to demons. Sometimes it refers, it, it, you know, in your mind, it's, it's height and depth. It's time. It's present and past. Sometimes it's government. Um, Jesus talks about, he says, uh, he, sometimes he talks about the Sabbath as a power. Sometimes money is talked about as a power. And so in the New Testament mind, it, it, it basically is all lumped under one thing called a principality. And a good way to think about a principality is not, now crazy charismatics, demons are a principality. But they're not the only one. And a way to think about a principality is 
a faceless power which influences our life. A faceless power that influences our life. You see, these ancients weren't so dumb after all, were they? What other faceless powers influence our lives? Shout them out. I'm going to write them out. Facebook. Yeah? That, that has so many faces, it's essentially faceless. Yeah. Social media. What other, what other kind of faceless powers influence our lives? Sorry? Russian government. I'll just say government. <laughs> You're absolutely right, but Russia and all governments, yeah. Um, I already mentioned one, money. Fear. What else? What other kind of identity, cultural culture? Sorry, Shame. Oh my goodness, that is a good one. Capitalism. I mean, I'll add on to that, any ism. Okay, that's my bad writing. So sorry, I didn't realize I was going to be that. It's very messy. Any ism is a faceless power which influences our life. Socialism. Fundamentalism. Nationalism, right? Think about any of those isms, and in some way we, we, we come under those things, or we are fighting against those things, or they're telling us our identity, right? Our cultural identity. And the New Testament imagination has a really good word for that principality, powers and principalities. And another good way of talking about those things if you are charismatic, is strongholds, right? So this is why it's like, I think there's freedom tonight. Because the New Testament, it, you know, like when, 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 you, when your California charismatic preacher on the Bethel TV or whatever talks about strongholds coming down, I'm an academic theologian, and I'm not going, oh, what an idiot, he has no idea. I'm nodding my head going, yeah. Those guys who talk about strongholds are probably more deeply Christian than they even realize. They're probably more theologically rooted than they even know. The early Christian imagination was all about strongholds. So when Jesus is marching across the land in the Gospels, and he's doing his good news, good news, your rightful king has come and broken the siege, what he's doing is he's going into different areas of um, contested areas, and he'll go into like, think about how he'll go into a synagogue. So we got in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is, uh, he comes out of the desert, right? And he's been baptized in the desert. And you remember the very first thing that happens is he goes into the, a synagogue and there's a man there who has a demon. And one of the first things you're supposed to ask yourself is, how the hell did a demon get into a synagogue? And I mean hell, seriously. There's a demon in a synagogue. And then Jesus shows his authority over that stronghold, right? And he exorcises the demon out of the synagogue. And then, just to prove that it's not just about Jewish religion or Jewish people, he then goes across the river and he goes water and he goes to a, a Gentile region. And he meets a man who's filled with a whole host of demons. And what does that man say his name is? Legion. If you're, if you're a first century Roman occupied Gentile and you hear the word legion, what do you think you hear? What's the first thing it feels like to hear that word? It's Roman soldiers, right? And this is Mark telling you, like, Jesus has authority over Jewish demons and he has authority over Roman demons. He's breaking down strongholds. And then he'll go to other places and he'll... I don't know, he'll attack the, the idea of family. Think how, I didn't even, we're going to write that one up. Think how family. So think how Jesus is doing his thing and his family comes to him. Do you know that there is not a single, I think I'm right here, 
If I'm wrong, I, I'll admit it, and I would like you to prove me wrong. There isn't a, I don't think there's a single mention in all of the Gospels where Jesus mentions blood family as an unambiguously good thing. He always puts it back in its place. Now, he's not against it. He doesn't think it's evil and must be destroyed. But at every moment, like even when he's on the cross and he looks down at his mother and he says, you know, he says to the beloved disciple, take my mother. You know, she's your, uh, she's your mom now. He kind of, he makes a blended family. <laughs> um, Jesus is always, so his family comes to him uh, and they're like, you're crazy. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, he's teaching and his own family come to him and they say, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. And the people say, your mother and father, or your mother and brothers are asking for you. They think you're out of your mind. And Jesus says, who is my mother and my brothers? Oh, you are my mother and my brothers, the people who are in with me doing my will, hearing my words. And he redefines or he puts that kind of idol of family back in its place, right? He puts that power that has been putting a claim onto somebody, he puts it in its place. And he does it with Sabbath. Hey, your disciples are eating on the Sabbath. And Jesus goes, oh, don't you know? Humans were made for, Sabbath was made for humans. Not humans for Sabbath. You've started to serve the thing that was meant to serve you. You've let a faceless power have too much control. And all of these things, if you think about them, um, the story of all of them, they're not so much, well, well, not even demons. None of these things are evil in themselves. The story of a principality or of a power is something, is the story of something that has that grows too big, that bursts its bounds, that tries to take more than it deserves. And if you think about the story of what a demon is, right? A demon is, is meant to be an angel that has grown proud. A demon is like a originally a, a good power which has become corrupted. But then you think of all these other things as well where humans so many times in the New Testament, like we think of power and principality language as if it's only spiritual. And we have to remember that it's not only spiritual, a lot of it is human invention. Or it comes because we agree about it. So family is a power, but we create families. Nations, religions, isms, money systems, systems of shame and honor. Now these things have a purpose and a place, right? But we've invented them, we created them, and now Sometimes we come under them. We become slaves to the very things that were meant to serve us. Does this make sense? And so in the New Testament imagination, it's that it's like, oh, Jesus is the king over all the powers. They're put at his feet. And it's not saying all these things are stupid and evil and must be destroyed. It's saying all these things are not God. And they're being put back in their rightful place, right? So the, the idea of um, when we practice spiritual warfare, we're not always just attacking. Often what you're doing is you're... If, if a power is a faceless power that influences our lives, then one of the early Christian responses to it was to put a face to the faceless was to, or a name to the nameless. So the Apostle Paul says, can you test the spirits? He says, discern the spirits. And he doesn't mean by discerning the spirits, like, can you give a name to that demon flying around, or can you name the angel that's in the... What he means is, like, take a temperature of the room, right? What's... What have we created? Which is why I thought it was great that you're doing metrics, the metrics. Like, that's spiritual warfare, because what you're doing is you are, you are putting a name to what has otherwise been nameless. You're putting a, a label to something which... So, you know, if, if you're saying... I don't, know what the, I don't even know what the numbers were. But, you know, if, if you're saying, oh, 21% of us feel lonely and disconnected, okay? Well, we've now given... An, we've, we've now shone a light on something that has been influencing our lives here in this community, but we've been allowing it to happen without us knowing it. So the early Christians are like, well, we combat that by naming the nameless. 
They're putting a face to the faces. And so often it's actually deliberately humanizing. So think about this. Who has you know, ever tried to return? I had this while ago. I had to return a Hoover. Who's ever had to return something at a shop? And you go up there and you've got your receipts and all that. And the person at the till says, computer says no. Right? Who's ever tried to get a refund or there's been a mistake and you're like, and they go, I'm sorry, mate. Computer says no. And you go, but please, I'm, I'm looking at you man to man, person to person. You know, please have pity on me. I need that money. Like, you've taken my money and, and you can tell that the Hoover doesn't work. I'm just, I'm begging you, please let me do it. And the, the, the poor guy, some 17 year old, you know, and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not empowered to do that. And we are both trapped in an inhuman system. The system, whenever you've faced computer says no. The New Testament says that's a demonic system. It's been demonized. It's grown inhuman. We're now slaves to something we made that was meant to serve us. And now we're serving it. And a good language for that is that it's become demonized. And we're not meaning like there's a demon in the Hoover. <laughs> but we mean it's like something is trapping us. And so when Paul and the others were saying, like, let's discern the spirits, they don't, they're meaning like when somebody comes into our room, when somebody comes in to us right now, you know, what do they feel? Like, do they do they is it hospitable? Is it kind? Or are they excluded? Or do they face arrogance? Right? We can generate. And, and you know, the, the New Testament often talks, if you look at like the book of Revelation, for example, he, the writer addresses his letter. He's like, I write to the angels of the churches. And he lists seven churches. And then sometimes he'll say, and I know the demon that lives in your city. And it's interesting because this is part of this idea that we, we actually have an idea that we help to set the spiritual state of our environment. We can create, I don't quite want to go so far as to say we've generated the demon or we've generated the angel, but there's something in the New Testament imagination that humans get to, by our collective decision, we get to create an environment which is a welcome home to the angelic or the demonic. And it's not as easy as, so when you're waging spiritual warfare, it's not as easy as just saying, there's the spirit realm and we're going to attack it. Because you're all, in the New Testament, your spirit realm and your human institutions are, the, are similar. They're the same thing. They're like two sides of the same coin. Right? So you're like, what is it in your practice that is making the demon of greed and money so welcome? Change your ways. What is it amongst you that is making, that is leading people to want to jostle and fight for position? And Paul talks about in the book of Galatians, which my friend knows better than me, he's doing his PhD on it. But like what happens when Paul says, you foolish Galatians, you fight and scratch, you act like animals. You've become dehuman, inhuman, because you, you, you're fighting and, and you're jostling for power and position. He's like, become human again, start acting the way Jesus told you to. Lay down your life for one another. Stop fearing, right? So, I just want to, this is like a tool I want to give you or something I want to practice I want to give you and encourage you. Like, we have really good language and tools to draw from when we're doing stronghold breaking and spiritual warfare and all that stuff. We've got that. It's right there in the New Testament. And it's so much bigger and better and so like when when you're doing like what, what, what you're the compassion pastor right like when you're dealing with town councils or when you are trying to get the you know the government to to do this or that or when you're trying to you know get a tax rebate or whatever as christians we are like the way we engage with the system is also part of our spiritual warfare right because we are going to try and humanize 
the inhuman. It might be that we make an effort to make a personal connection with the 17-year-old who's telling us computer says no. It might be that we're saying, listen, mate, I understand. You've been dehumanized, same as me. Right? You recognize, you, you name what's happening in the room. You name what we've all come under and you're saying, come out from that. So I just want to enlarge our imaginations of what's possible when we go through this world. And I'm a political theologian, which doesn't mean that I care so much about what party you vote for every four or five years. Like that, seriously, is one of the least important aspects of politics. But by politics, I mean, like, how do we organize ourselves? What vision do we have for how we use our power? How do we negotiate space with other people who have different visions of power, right? That's all political. So right now, we are just political. In this church, we are being political. Um, the fact that everybody in this room probably doesn't agree about Brexit or whatever, but we're all still in this room, is itself a political statement. Do you see that? That we're saying we think there are some disagreements that aren't enough to break our relationship. We've just made a social political statement. We've just waged spiritual warfare. Because we've said, eh, not today, Brexit. You don't control us. Right? And, and if you ever are in an environment where you're like, I'm a Remainer and I can't possibly be next to a Brexit person, a fellow Christ lover, well, now you've got to watch out because you've allowed this human institution to dominate and dehumanize your fellow, fellow worker in Christ, right? So this is kind of what we're always doing, and it's a constant, it's a constant battle. It's a constant reminder, but it's... I want to end with, um, have a look at Colossians 2, which is a brilliant, Colossians 2, this is the brilliant passage I wanted to end with. And I might, I'm not just going to read it, I'm going to explicate it a bit. Let's see, I've been talking for about enough time. I think I have enough time. Do I have enough time to keep, to read this? Okay. So, have a look at Colossians 2. Um, it's a bit long, but I, I'll, I'm going to start at 2.1, and I'm, uh, no, 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 I'm going to start at 2.8, and I'll, I'll, I'll skim a bit. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And then it talks about circumcision. In him you were also circumcised. You were buried with him in baptism. In which you were raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone <clears throat> judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Right? Since then you have died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Why, as you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teaching. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any real value in restraining sensual indulgence. I just basically read the whole chapter there. Um, but like, look at that. Pay attention to that. Now, a lot of people, 
Look at 2.8. See that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Now, I get this all the time. I'm a philosopher. I have more than one degree in philosophy. So I always get Christians going, oh, see, you're not supposed to do that. I hate to break it to you. This isn't a verse about studying philosophy. Because... See to it that no one takes you by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Well, your Bibles here, your pew Bibles, which are responsible Bibles, does anybody know there's a little note, right? Elemental spiritual forces. And there's a little note at the bottom of another way you could translate this. Does somebody have their Bible? Basic principles. Common sense. Paul isn't talking about going to university to study philosophy. He's talking, do not let yourself be held captive by common sense. And he calls them elemental spiritual forces. Basic principles. He's not talking about elite ideas. He's talking about those basic principles which we all just assume without acknowledging. Right? Think of the way like racism works. And, and Paul here is talking, we're going to look at it, he's specifically talking about racial identity and ethnic identity. Think how that works. Like, why can't I marry that person whose skin color is different than mine, who has a different accent? And then the answer is, well, that's not what people like us do. Right? Why, why can't I do that? Why can't we be in that neighborhood? Well, people like us don't go to those neighborhoods. Right? That's a basic principle. And Paul is saying, do not be held captive by the sense that we all share in common. By the unanalyzed habits and traditions that you're just born into. Don't be held captive by those things. And he calls them elemental spiritual forces. Um, it depends on human tradition rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And, and he puts Christ above all these things, right? He is the head over every power and authority. Every faceless power which influences our life. And in him, you were also circumcised. And all that circumcision language is all about being the right member of the right sort of religious ethnic tribe. Circumcision language is all about that. Whenever you see that, you know you're, you're looking at the, the great big conflict in the early church was Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were trying to figure out how to get along. And there was a really big, it was dividing the church. It was the gay marriage of the day. It was the women preachers of the day. Or whatever hot button issue you want to talk about. The one in the New Testament was, how do we deal with, if, if Jesus is Jewish, which he is, and if he was the fulfillment of the law, which he is, then how do we deal with Gentiles who want to be followers of Jesus? And there was a huge debate about it. And we can read it in our New Testaments about the conflict that's going on. And Paul wades in. And one of his solutions to it is to not see some of those practices that have to do with the basic human traditions as valid anymore as like those marks that you're supposed to do to prove that you're a good Jewish person person, he's like, that's not valid anymore for followers of Christ. And they were so connected to a kind of an inherited tradition, an inherited family allegiance and affiliation. And that's what all that stuff at the end there about do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or religious festivals or new moon celebrations or Sabbath days, right? These are all, it's not just religion he's talking about. It's family honor, and cultural allegiance and patriotism. These things are all heard. They're national. They're not just religious when he talks about these things. He's talking about people being willing to break down their, their privileged status as one type of person, one type of group, and being willing to let that go for the sake of another group, right? And then he says, but there's this brilliant thing that... that God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. So, again, these faceless powers. 
this faceless power of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. And it's, you know, the story of Jesus, so the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins. Okay, I'm not saying that's not true. But I want you to expand your imagination of what sin might be. And what it means to die for our sins. And in the New Testament, you think about the story. It's like Jesus is marching across the land and he's breaking down strongholds and he's bringing people out. All these lies or traditions or powers that are holding them captive and he's bringing them out into the open, right? And the story in the Gospels is the world cannot live with him. He's a king who's creating a new kingdom around him and people are following him. And the world doesn't like it. And by the world, we mean the forces of popularity. Think of the crowds that are following Jesus who love him. And then when he doesn't give him what they want, it's the very same crowds that then yell, crucify him. Popularity switches. Or think of the Jewish, Pharisaic, temple type kind of structures that are just openly challenged by Jesus. Like, we can't live with this guy. He's raised Lazarus from the dead, and we're actually actually told in the Gospels, like, he's raised Lazarus from the dead. The Pharisees don't doubt that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He's raised Lazarus from the dead. We need to kill him because everybody's going after him. They didn't kill Jesus because they thought he was a fake. They killed Jesus because they were losing power. And we're told right there, you know, we don't have control over the people anymore. They're all going over to him. And then you Rome, like who actually killed Jesus? It wasn't the Jews that killed Jesus. It was Rome. Think of what Rome is. Rome is empire. It's domination. It's total violence. It's greed. All that story's in there about Caesar's taxes that Jesus is supposed to have a say on. And he's very indifferent towards All these things that are like Rome's way of dominating and putting it, stamping its control over other people. And then it's Rome that is the most scared of Jesus, and that's why he's killed. Here is Jesus, king of the Jews, right? That's why he was killed. Because he was seen as a, a challenge to that whole system and way of life. And the New Testament is like, those are our sins. Popularity, religion, Empire, family, tribalism, right? Greed. Those are the sins that put Jesus on the cross because they couldn't live with him. And they're all faceless powers that we helped to create and then we've become a slave to and we've let those things, and we don't get away from this. It's not they who killed Jesus. Like We are part of that system, right? We've all been part of human systems that we've created which have allowed to become monstrous, which can't live with the real king because they all want to be king themselves. And the New Testament is like, and Jesus submitted to those powers. He didn't pick up a sword and fight them. He didn't fight the way the world fights because that would just be to create yet another violent If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. It just doesn't help anything. It just creates yet another principality. And Jesus submits to it, and in submitting to it, by allowing those things to pin him to the cross, says Colossians and elsewhere, he exposed them to open shame. You know, he shone a light on what has been hidden, what had been nameless and faceless. He exposed them for what they were. You know, an innocent man, a good man being killed by evil human systems. He exposes it for what it is. He exposed them to open shame. And in that is his triumph. So when we say Jesus died for our sins, we aren't making a private statement about my own secret sins. We're making a political statement about what kind of world Jesus exposed and what kind of king he really is. And you know the story. You know how the Roman centurion is at the foot of the cross, right, in the end of Gospel of Mark. And, uh, and he looks up at the cross, and it's at that point, remember, the Roman centurion, 
the guy who represents the evil ruling empire who's now holding the chosen people of God under its thumb. Um, and, and so the Roman centurion is not a figure of honor. He's not a brave soldier who's protecting people. He's a figure of oppression. And even he at the foot of the cross at that point where Jesus submits to all the evil that the world could throw at him, what does that man say? Do you remember? Surely this man was the son of God, yeah? Do you know that the son of God is not a private worship phrase? Do you know that the son of God was the slogan stamped over the head of every Roman coin? Caesar's head, and it said, here is Caesar, son of God. That phrase was on every coin in the Roman's purse. So when he says, surely this man is the son of God, he's saying, Mark really wants you to know, he's saying, surely this man is the king of the, the world, right? The rightful king. So why don't we stop there? But what I want to do is um, we're going to have some, some music. We're gonna have, where's my music, guys? But what I think is, Somebody, every single person, there is one thing on this list that you are in bondage to. Death, fear of death, money, fear, shame, government, social media. Like, there is something on this list that you have come under. Tonight we can worship God and in the worship, like hold that up in worship and just put it at the foot of the cross, yeah? We're going to put Jesus and then everything else underneath. But we're going to do it through worship. Yeah? Let's do it. Can I invite you to stand? I'm just going to end in prayer, and then we're going to go straight into the music. Holy Spirit, I thank you for your presence with us. I thank you that you live with us and in us, and you are Emmanuel, and you are God with us. So I bless everyone in this room in the name of Jesus, and we see you as king, and we're going to put all the principalities back in their rightful place right now. In Jesus' name, amen.